And so uh, we'll get into 1 Timothy chapter 3 this evening. But it's a great day to be alive if you're alive. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God. We're grateful anytime the Lord opens our eyes and we're able to fellowship. Anytime he goes out of his way to do wonderful things for us, we sing his praises. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read the first two verses and then we'll pray and then we'll just kind of slowly but surely teach on these qualifications for being a pastor, qualifications for being an elder and what the scripture says here. But this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. So we'll just stop there because we'll get into all of the other verses also. But let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, as we look into your word this evening, we're grateful for an opportunity to study the scripture to hear what a man had to say to his son in the faith. I pray, God, you'd impart wisdom to all of us. Give us a spirit of understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. This letter Paul wrote to Timothy is called a pastoral epistle. That means it gives all kind of information about the governance of a local church We know that Timothy had been left in Ephesus and he was left there in order to put things in place and to take the word of God and put it in its proper perspective for the Christians that are there. If you've ever taken the time to look at the book of Titus, then you will know that in chapter one of Titus, you have essentially the same teachings with regard to someone that is a bishop. And just to read a few little statements out of Titus 1, he says in verse 5, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I appointed you. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless. Now I want to say in the beginning that the very first sentence of 1 Timothy 1 verse 1 says that Paul is an apostle. And an apostle is someone sent by God to do a particular work, to have a particular message, to go to a particular place, to lay a specific foundation. We know that Jesus appointed 12 apostles. We also realize that there were other apostles named in Scripture, because even in Thessalonians, Paul, Timothy, Silas are called apostles. Even in the book of Corinthians, we run into the word messengers in one of the texts, and the Greek word also is apostles. So we have nearly 20, if not more, people in the New Testament that are considered apostles. And the reason I'm bringing this out as we get into this, because I want you to understand that the role of a bishop or an elder is an office or a ministry in Paul's time that was appointed by an apostle. Now what the, the, the title or the term bishop has become today is somewhat different than it was back then. 
But Paul is the one who left Timothy in Ephesus. He's the one that left Titus in Crete. So verse 1 then, this is saying that this is a very true statement that if someone desires the office of a bishop, they're desiring a good work or an honorable work. So quite naturally, a person can want to aspire to this particular ministry. But what is the role of the bishop then? Uh, This same word, the Greek word that underlies our English word bishop, is what we also find in Acts chapter 1 when Judas had taken his life. And Peter stood up and said to all the people, we need to appoint someone to take over Judas's bishopric. Okay, so his office, his ministry. Judas didn't have a church. But what he did have was a specific set of duties that were under his oversight. So when we talk about a bishop, we're talking essentially about an elder who's been placed in a particular role of responsibility. As it says in Titus, Paul said, I left you there to ordain elders. And then he goes on to say that a bishop must be blameless. So the terms were interchangeable. A bishop was an elder, an elder was a bishop. Uh, It's not like today where you have Christian groups that have a bishop, then they've got an archbishop and, and all of that. None of that appeared until the end of the second century. None of that has anything to do with what we have in In scripture here, a bishop was someone appointed by an apostle to oversee a church or a particular work. And then the scripture says it's an honorable work. Well, it is because you're involved with feeding sheep and ministering to people. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, he sent for all the elders of the church of Ephesus And that's where we get the word presbyter from, from that Greek word that's talking about the elders. And then later on in verse 28, it talks about having the oversight over the flocks of which God made you overseers. So you had a plurality of elders and then you had multiple kinds of oversight. And the Greek word for the overseer is the same for what we have here as a bishop. So it was a fairly large church, possibly a number of house churches because they didn't have buildings at that time like we have today. But they did have congregations of people, people fellowshipping, people being discipled and people learning about God. And a bishop was someone who was appointed to that particular work or those particular people. So then the qualifications, there are about 15 of these. A bishop should be blameless. That means that he should live a life that is not open to attack from people. Now, that's that's not a that's not the easiest thing to do. But I always liken it to this, that a minister lives his or her life as though they're in a glass fishbowl and everybody's paying attention to what they're doing, what they're saying. And, and people are, are, are real funny when it comes to uh, ministers because even sinners will say things like, well, I thought you were a preacher. Because in their mind, they have an idea of what they think a preacher should do and not do. So to be blameless is to be above reproach. <clears throat> that means you have to avoid things sometimes that aren't necessarily sins, but are weights. 
things that can bog down your testimony. Talking about ministers. But then also the husband of one wife. Now this has um, certainly uh, brought about a number of different interpretations with, with commentators because they'll say, okay, this means that this was a time of polygamy and he could only have one at a time. But I don't know anywhere in the early church where polygamy was approved or endorsed. Or they'll say, well, this just means that uh, he can only be married one time. Well, the wife might die, you see. And, and the book of Romans talks about people uh, being married again. At the same time, some people take this and they're under the assumption that because it's the husband of one wife is just simply saying he can have one wife but can't have any mistresses or concubines on the side. Well, I mean, that, that would be obvious, you know. But let me show you another verse in, in 1 Timothy. Look at chapter 5, and it's talking about widows, and we have the same language. 1 Timothy 5, let not, verse 9, Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years, having been the wife of what? One man. Well, we know she couldn't be polygamous. So he's just talking about being the wife of one person. The reason something like this is important in a minister, although I don't think this is uh, a rule that won't ever be broken, is because you, you do want someone leading fellowships and ministries that have been able to hold on to covenants. Now, as a a minister, two ministers in our organization, I can tell you, you've got to take things on a case-by-case basis. I've seen preachers who, before they were saved, uh, had a divorce or divorces. And, and certainly when they come to know the Lord, you just don't want to exclude somebody from what God may want to do in their heart on the basis of grace. I've also seen people who were married, then called to the ministry, and then had a spouse that did not want to have anything to do with the ministry. And I mean, just sometimes just walk away. Just say, I don't want to have anything to do with the church. I'm not interested in doing this whole thing. And so in that sense, then 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 comes in where you start talking about one that's been abandoned or an opportunity has come and people have been separated. And Paul says... If anybody's going to be remarried, then they should be married in the Lord. It has always been God's plan for us to marry people of the same precious faith, not to be unequally yoked. And, and that has everything to do with how we minister in churches because churches consist of families. And it consists of people that are wedded, people that are broken, people that are uh, divorced. So the elder or the bishop uh, leading a church should be one who's the husband of one wife. Do you, do you, you think it would be a good thing if your pastor was a, a, a serial marriage person? You don't think that'd be good at all? I don't think that'd be good. Wouldn't be helpful. <clears throat> um, when it talks about vigilant, it's just talking about an individual who's watchful. That's what a shepherd is supposed to be or a minister overseeing any particular flock or ministry should have his eyes open 
to be paying attention to what's taking place, taking place amongst the people that he's ministering to. Sober is simple, sound-minded, a person who's grounded, a person who's not going to allow themselves to be given over to any substances or any people that'll control the way that they think. Now, obviously, the Bible tells us to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. So our mind should be controlled by the scriptures. But Paul did not want Timothy's mind controlled by ancient Roman culture. And you can be intoxicated with secular things, carnal things, worldly things. You can have a mind that is inundated with sinful ideas. And if you're not careful, you lose your ability to know the difference between what's right and wrong. So the Bible talks about a day in which people would call what is good evil and what is evil good. And if a preacher loses his ability to be vigilant and sober minded, don't you think he's going to preach that confusion to the people? And since a church is like fertile ground and Jesus said his word is seed, you put that seed in those fertile hearts, you get a harvest of confusion. And this is what we have in our nation today. This, this is definitely what we have in our nation today and in many of our churches. We, we don't know which bathroom the kids ought to go to. We, we don't know what gender some kids are supposed to be. And there's all of this turmoil because people are no longer sober-minded. And some of them are preachers. Yeah. So Paul's trying to avoid this. Don't think in ancient times Paul didn't have to deal with what we're dealing with today. This stuff was in ancient Roman society. So verse two, then of good behavior. So here's a, a person who, who should live an orderly lifestyle in the sense that he, he, he needs to have good character. That, that's an important, that's an important thing of good behavior. You, you don't want a minister who's out in town telling vulgar jokes and dirty jokes. And, and I've met my share of preachers that do that. Yeah. And, and you don't want uh, someone whose behavior is so bad that when someone asks you who's your pastor, you just kind of hang your head because you don't want to tell anybody. And we've all probably met people that, that are like that. Okay, so verse 2 then continues by saying given to hospitality. And the Greek word uh, has to do with loving strangers. Christians who traveled in the first century didn't have Holiday Inn Expresses, and they didn't have hotels like we have. They, since many of them did not want to dwell in pagan surroundings, they looked for a Christian. If they knew a Christian family or had heard of a Christian family in a particular area, they'd show up and knock on the door at night and hope that someone would let them come stay in there. Even ancient Jews traveled that way and would stay in the synagogues when they went from village to village if they were moving from one area to another. So a minister then should be given to hospitality, wanting to help people, wanting to love people, and not be fearful of people that are unlike him or her, but a lover of strangers. That means we, we can't turn the blind eye to people on the basis of their ethnicity. <laughs> or because they don't make as much money as us, or they make more money than us. We're supposed to be people of, of a very strong character in that way. And when he says apt to teach, it's not just that a minister 
in this regard should be willing to teach, he should be able to teach, able to teach. And uh, sharing the word and ministering the word of God is an important thing. People can understand what the word says. I remember a, a preacher in another town where I think some of the ladies wanted a women's Bible study. And the, the pastor said, well, I'm already doing Sunday morning service. And I think the service was about 45 minutes each Sunday morning. And he said, if, if I have to do a woman's Bible study, that means I'm going to have to do a second service during the week. Now, this church was paying him about $80,000 a year. Plus, he had a parsonage and retirement. And he didn't want to have to give more time to study to teach ladies who wanted to know the scripture. But here's what the Bible says that anyone who desires the office of a bishop should be apt to teach. Why get involved with ministry if you don't want to do ministry? You understand? Why would any preacher want to get involved with ministry if he didn't want to do it unless his heart was never in it and he saw it as an opportunity to get over on people? It's like a pastor I asked many, many years ago out here. I said to him, <clears throat> I said, what led you into the ministry? He said, well, I retired from selling crop insurance and I wanted to go into my retirement years doing something less stressful. And I said, you choose pastoring? I said, this definitely is not the job you want that's going to be less stressful. But here was the thing. There was no calling in his life. There was no, no pull or tug from God in his heart to go after people, to win souls, to love people, to bring them in the kingdom. He was thinking about retirement and creating an environment for himself that would be filled with ease. I would never want a pastor like that. That's a man that won't pray. That's a man that won't read the Bible. But that's a person who's looking out for the latter end of his life. So verse 3 <clears throat> tells us not given to wine. Now in the Greek, it says not coming in the proximity of it or near or beside wine. That, that is to say, not allowing yourself to be held in the grips of it, in the very orbit or sphere of it. The people who don't mind, you know, little liquor here on the side, little social drinking, because there are a number of denominations where a lot of that goes on, I can tell you it's one of the reasons we have so many closet alcoholic preachers, you know, we, and we have a lot of them, and we've had a lot of them out here in this region, plenty of them. When Paul is talking to Timothy, you'll remember he says to Timothy, drink a little wine for your infirmity's sake. Well, of course, if somebody's ill or sick, medicinal purposes, fine. But I have never seen anywhere in the New Testament where God's people are involved with liquor in a social setting where they're just drinking it just in order to have a good time. But there are plenty of preachers who will get together and go to Casey's or someplace and buy a six pack, buy a case and they'll get some wine and they'll throw it back with all the good old boys and sit there and uh, laugh and joke and have a good time. But here's the question that I, that I would ask you. Would you ever want a pastor doing that? You know, 
we hadn't been here two years. Down in the center of this town, they had a, like a block party. And, and they had all this stuff where cones were up and people had a little food and everything like that out there. And so I went down there and one of the people from here in the church wanted to introduce me to another local pastor here in town. And so when they went to introduce me to the local pastor, he was sloppy drunk. And I seriously doubt if he ever remembered me. He's no longer here now anyhow. But, but here's the thing. What kind of an image and a picture did that present to the community for the congregation? See, But he had no problem at all doing that because in his lifestyle, there was no issue with alcohol. If you're a Christian and love God, stay away from it. Just stay away from it. Don't, don't waste your time with it. Certainly a preacher shouldn't get involved with it. When it says in verse 3, somebody that's not a striker, that's talking about the, the, that's going to be the following word also, a brawler, somebody getting involved with fisticuffs and, and that kind of a thing. And if you're going to throw some liquor in there, you're going to start doing some bad things. In the Old Testament, there's a story of some priests who offered strange fire in the tabernacle. And the Bible says the judgment of God came up and the fire of the Lord consumed them and they died. The very next verse says, Moses, you're commanded to tell the priests when they are doing their duties here for me, they are not to drink strong liquor and wine. Why? Because people start doing weird things, you know, a person they're no longer sober-minded, so that's why the most passive person that you meet when they start drinking, they're ready to fight. Yeah, sometimes the quietest person you know, you put, you put a little liquor in them and they get tanked up, they don't stop talking because their character changes. So verse 3, shouldn't be a striker, shouldn't be greedy of filthy lucre. That's a person who's pursuing money. If a person's called to do ministry, do ministry. And don't be out here chasing after money, whether it's in the church or out of the church. The reason for that is a preacher who is greedy in heart for money sets himself up to be bribed and easily manipulated. Now, there are people who lay awake at night and dream up ways of getting your money out of your pocket into theirs. And they've got every kind of gimmick you can think of in order to get it from you. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm giving you power to heal the sick, cast out devils and so on and so forth. Then this is what he said. Freely you've received, freely what? Give. At no time with all of the healings that they had, all the deliverances that they had, did they ever exploit somebody's miracle or exploit the preaching of the gospel? But I've got a notion to come in here and get some, get some little small coffee cups and put a nice little picture of a pastor and Tiffany on the side of it. You know, it wouldn't cost me but about 72 cents to get each one. Then I'd say to everybody in here, if you give $15, you get a coffee cup. You get to see me every morning as you start your day and you can help push the kingdom of God. See that, that, that is sometimes what happens. I've always believed this too, when it comes to fundraising or anything. Whenever I've wanted to do something with young people or other people to take people overseas or to do something with folks, if I could sell a T-shirt 
and you'd be willing to give $10 for a t-shirt in order to give towards a missions trip for some kids, why wouldn't you just be willing to give the $10? You see? The, the mentality today, because of the greediness of preachers and the desire to have more and more, is to convince people that there's always this divine exchange. So you're going to receive something naturally if you give something naturally. But here's what the principle of Scripture is. If you tithe and give offerings to the king, he opens the windows of heaven and pours you out a blessing. Now, I don't want anybody to go away from here being a condemnation for me saying that they can't buy Christian T-shirts and all that kind of stuff. Because I'm telling you, Darren has some of the best shirts I've ever seen anybody wear that's a, that's a Christian. And, and I think it's great when uh, we support Christian ministries. I do. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. What I am saying is that if we're a church and we call ourselves not-for-profit, then we should stop trying to act like Wall Street salesmen. And the preachers are the ones that are leading the way on this. And it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to me that everything from a soup to a rib dinner, I mean, we'll, we'll turn the church into everything Jesus didn't want it to be in his day. When he said, my house will be called a house of prayer. You know, all of that because we're chasing after finances. But a, but a pastor should be patient Elder should be patient. You hear that, Sister Tiffany? Patient. You folks pray for me. Yeah, pray, pray, pray for me. Patient. What does that mean? Long-suffering. A patient person is someone who can put up with stuff for long periods of time, suffer long with it. So you see sometimes in the grocery stores where mom is walking with the little kids and going down the little aisle, and every three steps, the little kid is saying, Mom, can I have that? Mom, can I have that? So you know, after two aisles of that, and about a half hour of that, and having heard that 272 times by now, sometimes the patience wears thin. But even pastors have to be patient, because people can get on the person's last nerve. I, I, I told a, a minister's group one time, I said, you know, this, this shepherding thing would be wonderful if it wasn't for the sheep. <laughs> yeah. Some people, they don't have the temperament or the personality that makes them easy to love. You ever met people like that? Yeah. Some people are irritable, easily offended, you know, miserable in the sense that they murmur and complain about everything but yet God says for a pastor that, that, that he should be patient. Yeah, patient. Not a brawler. See, going back to a striker. Not somebody, you know, ready to say, you want to step outside? No, that, that wouldn't be good for, for a minister. But you hear story after story of preachers who end up in fisticuffs. Uh, the Lord said, turn the other cheek. Well, somebody told me one time, I only have two. And after I turned that second one, you know, then I've got to defend myself. But I, I do believe that, that as a minister, this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't want me to abuse or defile this temple. So he certainly doesn't want me to let somebody else abuse and defile this temple. But we're not called to be brawlers. That's, that's not what 
this is all about in the ministry. We have to be able to walk away from harsh words. I've had in, in the, the lifetime of pastoring people, I've had people say terrible things to me, terrible things, disrespectful things, sometimes things where, you know, you, you, you want to respond in the flesh, but you don't say anything. You know, don't say anything. And the reason you don't is because oftentimes God takes a person's path who's angry and that person who's on that path doesn't realize God's directing their steps in such a way it's going to bring them right back to the minister. So you, you learn to be patient, and, and God has a way of humbling us all. It's, it's important to know that. So not even covetous. A, a person who is doing the work of a bishop is going to oversee people in a church who have different material blessings and resources. That means that for that pastor, somebody may have a car that's better than his, a house that's bigger than his. See? may have a family bigger than his, may have more of this, more of that, but it can never be our desire inwardly to covet what they have. Because once you start coveting what somebody else has, then pretty soon you start working to get it. One of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, car, donkey, all that kind of a thing. And once the covetousness starts, then pretty soon we start organizing our steps in order to get that. And there have been plenty of ministers that have gone out of their way and ended up in adultery because they had their eye on somebody else's spouse. In, in one of the towns where we have a church, I think we're the only church where the preacher hadn't run off with somebody else's wife or woman. See, think about that. Um, that's not a good commentary, you know. But, but what, it, what it shows is <clears throat> the, the devil is constantly looking for places in all of our hearts, that soft spot, that miry clay, see, where he can get in there and just kind of get us bogged down in our emotions and in our appetites and in our lusts and things like that. So verse 4, he says, One that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And the reason he's saying this is because the home is a miniature church. And the individual who is going to minister in a church and lead a church will not be able to operate in any kind of wisdom in that church that he doesn't apply in his home. So if... If my wife and I don't like each other, do you think that's going to be known in the church? Yeah, yeah. When I visit a church and it's my first time going, I'm paying attention to that pastor and his wife. I'm paying attention to those elders and their wives. I'm watching deacons and their wives. You say, what are you looking for? I'm looking at how the, the spouses interact. If I, if I look and see a, a pastor reach out and try to put his arm around the wife and the wife tenses up and takes a side step, 30 inch side step, then I know that's not good. If, if I'm looking at the, the wife or the husband and the preacher is maybe telling a story and the wife's over there rolling her eyes like, oh my goodness, here he goes lying again. I'm like, wow. See, I'm not, all this is going on up here. You can't see it on my face, but I'm just kind of watching and I'm paying attention because if I see it with the kids, 
if, if, I, if I see with the children and the children aren't interested in anything mom and pops has to say about God, then that's telling me about what's going on at home. See, that's, that's, that's exactly what, what's that saying. So coming, coming back to this, <clears throat> one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. So then, uh, a, a bishop probably wouldn't want to have kids that are in and out of jail. And it probably wouldn't look good if, if their kids were introducing liquor to other kids. Now let me tell you something that I've seen under the sun. I've, I've seen, and this, this isn't reflection anything in here, but, but I've seen uh, homeschool gatherings where the people are deep in the reformed faith, cessationism and that kind of a thing, and predestinarian beliefs, God has selected some to go to heaven, others to go to hell. And, and, and I've seen where those kinds of teenagers, because they're allowed to drink, they'll introduce it to other homeschool kids. Yeah. And then pretty soon we, we have alcoholics and we're wondering how, how it happened. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that with young adults in their 20s that are like that. Well, they say, well, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, coming again, if, if the devil can get into the children of the preacher, then he can work to destroy the preacher's testimony amongst the congregation because he'll get up and preach and, and she'll be ministering the word of God from the pulpit and the people in the congregation will be thinking like this. Well, why don't you apply that at home? See? You, you, you're up here telling us about, about this and about that with, with the kids, but those little hellions you've got that are running around town. See, that, that kind of thing, that kind of mentality. So verse 4, this shows why many preachers have left the ministry. Yeah. I've seen a lot of preachers leave the ministry because of their families. Tiffany and I were in Egypt one time, and we were with... Um, a family that had been there for years and they had to come off the mission field because of things taking place with their kids. Yeah. Sometimes these things have an effect on the ministry. Now I'm not saying that it's entirely mom and dad's fault or preacher's fault because I, I've certainly seen my share of ministers that really love God and are loving people and raise their family in the word of God. But, you know, kids get older and they just decide they're going to do what they want to do. And, and when they start doing that, if you're in ministry, then sometimes some congregations will hold you guilty because of the actions of younger people. And it's not always that case. This is why these things have to be studied study closely. But Paul said in verse 5, if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Well, he, he, he likely won't, you know. Uh, pastoring people, is, uh, uh, a lot of it has to do with problem solving, you know, trying to get people who don't like each other to reconcile, trying to put out fires before they get big, trying to keep tension from becoming terrible, trying to help people find the will of God, and when, when people start hearing what they believe is God's voice, then very often they don't want to hear what a pastor has to say. I mean, after all, if you believe God's talking to you, then what human is going to be able to change what you're hearing? And this happens at home sometimes. 
if, uh, if, if children believe or young adults believe God has told them to do this, then there is no one that's going to be able to change that mind. You can talk to you blue in the face, but the fact that you've, you brought God into it now means that my authority for the most part has been, you know, pretty much taken away in this regard. So a person says, Pastor, I want you to pray with us because we've been thinking about doing this and, and we've already resigned our job and we're going to go and, and do this. Then what exactly you want me to pray about? See, you've already made a decision. So really what you're wanting now is approval. See, that's what we're saying. So coming back to, to, to leading and governing in a church, uh, uh, families have to fall under the leadership and guidance of the scripture. And a pastor has to be able to, to, to lead that house without dividing it, without destroying it. There are some preachers that have a ministry of creating church splits. Everywhere they go, they create a church split. They'll take a church of 100 people, give them two years, there'll be 10. Then they'll move to the next place. They'll take a church of 40 people, and within six months, there'll be three. There's some people have that kind of ministry because their minds don't function according to Scripture. They're emotional, they're temperamental, and if somebody in the church makes them mad, then they get up from the pulpit, and then they use the pulpit to preach all the problems in the church. Well, sister so-and-so, I found out she's not tithing. So now he's going to get up there and he's going to hit tithing hard for the next 10 weeks. And every story he tells is going to be about sister so-and-so and her family. Well, you don't think she knows? Yeah, she, she'll know. Yeah, you've lost that one. There's, there's no wisdom in that kind of leadership or guidance at all. Verse 6, it says that he shouldn't be a novice. That's a new convert, newly planted in the faith. Why wouldn't you put a novice in charge of a church? Because he or she's not ready. That bishop isn't ready. He's not ready for that, that office. You put somebody in there, it'd be like taking a 14-year-old, making him the president of the United States. There are too many large decisions that have to be made. They wouldn't be able to handle them. Down in the South, whether you know this or not, it's common for uh, people that are 15 and 16 in what they call holiness churches to end up as pastors. Yeah, think about that. 15 years of age, <clears throat> just trying to pastors. Somebody's got a phone there. There was a, a young man one time who was 15. Let, let me just wait here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. There was a young man one time who was 15 years of age and he was pastoring a church, and he had to counsel some people on marriage. And he wasn't even married. He had counseled some people on marriage. And Brother Branko said that when they came to him, of course, he didn't know what in the world they were talking about when they were talking about all these marital issues and everything. And he said all he told both of them to do was to take a little Listerine and love on each other. Okay, now I don't know what all that was supposed to mean to them because I laugh just like you're laughing now. But what do you expect a 15-year-old to say? If you put a novice in charge of a church, you're going to have comedy because they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do, even if they're good preachers and good teachers. 
they still haven't lived enough to understand some of these things, you know. When um, some of these larger churches that we see in America that have sometimes seven, eight, nine, ten thousand or more, when you study it out, you see sometimes that the people who started the churches were novices when the church began. They had just become Christians two or three years beforehand. Then they started something. It quickly sprung up and mushroomed into hundreds and thousands of people. And so they take that as validation of their qualification. And then later on, when you find out about the harem of ladies or about the people stealing money, then everybody's saying, how did this happen? They were novices. A, a person should be discipled and learn from the word of God so that when they're put in a position of leadership, then they can continue what God has appointed them to do. And a novice wouldn't be able to do that because in verse six, it said, he'll be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's what happened with Satan. Yeah, just pride. He was thrown out because his heart was filled with iniquity and pride. How can you as a created being think you're equal to God? Think you're able to, you know, to beat God, to compete with God. But Jesus even said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It wasn't even a contest. When the Lord threw him out, he was gone. Just the Lord blinked and Satan was gone. And he's saying that that same kind of characteristic will be manifested in a new convert if they don't have the character that they should have. Okay, so then verse 7 moves a little further and it says he should have a good report of those that are outside the church, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. So even sinners should have something good to say about ministers. Yeah, sinners. We shouldn't just expect a good report amongst Christians. The unbelieving community, when they see us, they should have a favorable disposition towards people in the ministry. Now, those who work with ministers quite often, like hospital people, morticians, people who are, I'd say, sometimes in the school systems, they don't always have the best opinion of preachers because sometimes they see sides of ministers that aren't good. And to have the right attitude as a, as a believer means I want to win the, the lost to Christ. So I want to live my life in such a way that I can reach them when I talk about God. If they think I'm a hypocrite, do you think they're going to listen to me? No, no. Sinners won't. And, and, and they're, they're very careful. Uh, some of them will have a godly grandmother or a godly sister, sometimes a kid that loves the Lord. They have an idea of what Christianity is supposed to be, and they pay attention to how we live, which is why in, in the community, I've had people that have said to me, you know, Pastor, we always appreciate on Sundays or, or when we see you, you know, you, you, you always look clean and nice as a preacher. Now, I don't know what that's supposed to mean about other preachers, you know. And, and I've had so many uh, people tell me it's nice to see somebody that actually still, you know, dresses up or wears a suit or something like that. You know, I have people say that. That's because, uh, you know, this, this generation today, 
I mean, you walk into a room with people. I can't tell who the minister is, who the pastor is. I mean, the, the preacher's got on. He, he's got a pair of shorts on. He's got a Hawaiian shirt on. He's got three earrings, a nose ring, and everything else. And I'm trying to figure out who is in charge of this whole shebang. And a sinner comes off the street and looks at that, and he's trying to figure out what is the evident change and difference in your life from mine. Now, now clothing doesn't make the man or the woman. But our testimony and our witness has everything to do with how we present ourselves. And I've told many young preachers that are in their 20s and 30s that you should do everything you can to make yourself distinct from the people of this world. Distinct. So the people know you're different than they are. But if if you're if you turn on the television sometimes you will hear young people on there and they're saying, well, you know, we're reaching this group, we're reaching that group, and here's a lip ring, and sometimes they got eyeliner on and all this all this other stuff and you know, just stuff everywhere. You know, all over their skin, tattoos and all of that. And then they say, we're, we're reaching the lost. And I'm thinking, you're not reaching them, they're reaching you. They are converting you to who they are and what they are. We should have a testimony with people outside of the church. And people say there's a difference. Now let me just give a couple of more things here that I think are important. About these ministers, he says in verse 9 that he should hold the mystery of faith in a pure conscience and let these first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Because verse 8 gives us that first word says likewise. So that's to say that these characteristics in the, in the minister, we expect to see these in deacons. And I'll just say this quickly. We'll come back to this next time. But in Acts chapter 6, the apostles were involved with a lot of different things. And they said, we want to give ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. So they had the people select amongst themselves seven good folks. And then the apostles took those seven and appointed those seven to be servants in the church. And the Greek word for servant is the word we have here for deacon, which is the exact same word. So as a Christian, then the, the ministry of the deacon in the local church is to serve. Now, people can do a lot of things as deacons. Uh, the ones in Acts chapter six, some of them actually preach the gospel. Stephen, Philip, yeah. Uh, Acts chapter 16, there's a lady named Phoebe. She was a deaconess. She was handling work for, for Paul. But in regard to the, the ministry of a deacon, if, if they're appointed to do this and to do that, they should serve with their whole heart and serve with all the characteristics that are mentioned up here with the minister. And I think this is why James says, all of us shouldn't desire to be teachers because we'll, be, we'll receive the greater judgment. And, and I, I, I'm actually, I have a lot of respect for people who through the years when I've said to them, you know, I really think you'd be a good deacon, you know, or, or you'd be a good elder. And they've said to me, well, you know, pastor, I don't feel like I'm qualified for that. So I have a lot of respect 
for a person who would say that. Not that they're saying that you need to be perfect or Paul is saying you can't have any imperfections in your life because Paul certainly had them. Timothy had them. But when you're honest enough to be able to look at these and say, I'm not sure I could do that. Uh, When I was 19, if someone would have asked me to pastor, I think I would have declined. Yeah. In my later 20s, when I started, first started pastoring out here, wasn't sure how God was going to do that. But I know God told me as a teenager in a dream that one day I'd pastor. But what God did and what God does is he gives grace to the individual to fulfill the call. That's what he does. And anything God asks you to do, he'll give you the grace to be able to accomplish that. And I hope and pray that my wife and I can live our lives in such a way that you'll never have to hang your head in shame when you have to tell somebody where you go to church or who your pastor is or, or, or something like that because there's certainly enough of that kind of stuff in this world today. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's have a word of prayer, and if we have any questions, we'll talk some more. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, it's rich. It's filled with a lot of insight, information, and we're, we're happy that Timothy and Titus could receive from Paul all that they needed to hear in order to fulfill the call of God on their life in their respective places of work. So, Lord, help us every day as we're down here. Help us to live for you. Live humbly under your hand. Help us to live at the foot of the old rugged cross, seeking your face, keeping that old man under subjection, and allowing Jesus Christ to live through us. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen, 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 amen.